You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. This week on Find Your Voice, we're joined by Jennifer Shu, who's a research fellow in the Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at the Lowy Institute. Jennifer is currently working on a project which explores the intersections of Australia's multiculturalism and foreign policy. Now, at this time of Lunar or Chinese New Year, it seemed timely to discuss Australia-Chinese relations, the evolution of the Chinese-Australian community, and just how the current nature of the relationship between the Australian and Chinese governments affects and is viewed by Chinese-Australians. Jennifer, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for the invitation, Zoe. Now, starting with Lunar New Year, what does this time of year symbolise for Chinese Australians? Well, it's a new year. It's the year of the tiger. So it's a lot of vigour that hopefully this year of the tiger will bring. And it's a time to celebrate with family and friends over um, shared love for food and also wishing each other good health and prosperity as the year begins. With almost half of Chinese Australians having come to Australia in the past decade, How has the broader picture of Chinese-Australian communities evolved in that time? Because that's a very rapid change in the demographic, isn't it? That's right. So last year, the Lowy Institute launched the first Being Chinese in Australia survey, which surveys over a thousand Chinese Australians about their sentiments to a range of issues. And so one of the things we found in the survey is that increase in migrants coming from China over the last 10 years. And that has really diversified the picture of Chinese-Australian communities. And I say communities because there are plural. It's not a singular homogenous entity. There are uh, migrants that arrived within the last 10 years, within the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and also those that came in the 19th century during the gold rush. Mm. And what's driven that sudden increase in migration? Is it a simple result of improving uh, prosperity in in China and increasing middle class, therefore leading to higher mobility? So up until recently, Australia had favourable policies with regards to taking immigrants from around different parts of the world. But also we also saw a conversion of um, sort of the international student status to permanent residence and that as a pathway to becoming citizens. So um, prior to the pandemic, we had high rates of Chinese students coming from the mainland China and who then decided to stay on and pursue a career family here in Australia. And that was a pathway to permanent residency and um, for some to citizenship. So that um, really sort of uh, provided an avenue in which we saw that quick, rapid um, sort of immigration from China to Australia. And so you say that up until recently, the conditions were favourable and obviously COVID is something that's beyond everyone's control. But do you think that that migration flow will continue in a post-COVID era or, or has the 
geopolitical dynamic altered that too? So I, I can't speak specifically about immigration policies, and that's that's outside my realm. But from sort of anecdotal research evidence from Australia and abroad, um, in terms of international Chinese students' sentiments towards studying in Australia, I would say some of the early research indicates that Australia still is an attractive option for a lot of uh, PRC students wanting to study in Australia. So if and when Australia becomes much more relaxed in allowing international students to return, I think there will be a, um, a sort of, well, it will be a slow and gradual increase in terms of the number of students coming back to Australia to study. But, um, but also, I guess you also have to factor in that a lot of potential students who wanted to study in China, uh, in Australia, had to make decisions to study elsewhere, for example, United Kingdom or Canada or the United States. So the future remains positive in that students make their choices based on sort of hearing what other students have said about Australia, family preferences, and Australia is regarded as a very safe place for international students. As you said, no community is homogenous. I'm curious though whether you think that there are particular characteristics or sort of qualities that are, have are entrenched in Chinese culture that Chinese people bring to Australia and, and how that helps their contribution to Australian society? So I think one of the things, I mean, this, we can make generalisations about Chinese Australians as being hardworking um, and having that kind of work ethic but in other ways, um, those stereotypes that um, Chinese Australians or broadly Asian Australians are less willing to speak up or um, be assertive about their um, rights and needs um, really hampers sort of the way we view and engage with Chinese Australians and Asian Australians. And I think those stereotypes, like all stereotypes, can be harmful. So I think... Um, and as I mentioned, Chinese Australians is diverse. It's not a singular type of community, but is made up of immigrants coming from not just from mainland China, but also from Southeast Asia, like um, Singapore, Malaysia, where there are high numbers of um, ethnically those who define themselves as having um, ethnic Chinese heritage. So mm. I think stereotypes, by and large, um, really pigeonhole people. And so, um, yes, on the whole, um, and generally speaking, we can say Chinese Australians are hardworking or have a hardworking ethic. But I think in other um, aspects, when we talk and think about how Chinese Australians operate in a society like Australia, those, um, those stereotypes can be harmful. Hmm. And then against the backdrop of what you've just said then, and considering the, I guess, generational development of Chinese immigration, are there specific things that you can sort of pick out as markers of contribution of the various Chinese communities or how they've had influence in the different Australian communities in which they've chosen to settle? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there are sort of, sort of key moments 
or key denoters of the success Chinese Australians have had within larger public life. For example, Victor Chang was named Australian of the Century in 1999, and um, paediatrician John Yu was Australian of the Year in 1996. So these are all um, really prominent Chinese Australians who have made a really um, significant mark in their field, um, in these cases, you know, in medical, in the medical profession. But on the whole, I would have to say, you know, the representation of Chinese Australians in public and political life is still very much underrepresented. So I think that is one area in which um, not just for Chinese Australians, but sort of Asian Australians across the across the spectrum need to be more active and there and I think at the institutional level such such as um, political parties um, need to think about sort of having quotas or having more affirmative action I, I believe the ALP does in terms of um, meeting sort of the needs of uh, a ethnically diverse country like Australia, um, Chinese Australians as Osman Chu has written in a recent paper that we're very much underrepresented in all aspects of political life, whether it's state or federal. Mm. Yeah, it's a really great point. And in fact, in all the conversations that I've been having about gender representation in Australian politics, there has also been this aspect of, well, what about cultural representation? If, if you argue that having more women at the table brings a more even-handed approach to how women are treated within policy, then surely the same applies to people from different backgrounds and, and different countries. So that could really sort of change the way policymaking is done, couldn't it? Absolutely. I think one of the papers Lowy Institute published last year was looking at um, Chinese Australians in the civil service, in Australia's civil service, and there is, again, under-representation of Chinese Australians in the civil service. And I think that speaks a lot to, you know, the type of policies um, that gets thought about and developed with regards, not just about foreign policy, but, you know, social policy as well. So when we're thinking about sort of social policies in an age of a pandemic, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse communities, uh, as we saw last year um, with the lockdowns here in Sydney, were you know, significantly affected. So just basic access to the type of information, information in their language was uh, a huge issue. So those who are, those who do speak English can access the information, you know, what, what is required once you're a close contact, what you need to do. Those kind of information wasn't readily available to the Chinese Australian population here in Sydney during the lockdown. So I think that shows a, um, a gap in policymaking. Mm. Um, and the need to consider in, in the near future about the culturally and linguistically diverse communities here in not in, not just in Sydney but across Australia. Right. Another thing that has come across my desk in the last few days, and it may even have come from one of your colleagues, was having a look at the media coverage of COVID. That is the mainstream media coverage and the way that the international effect of COVID was covered by the Australian media. And the, the finding of the, the analysis was, in effect, that the majority of the coverage was focused on what was happening in the United States, what was happening in the UK, and to some extent, what was happening in Europe, that there was very minimal 
focus on what's been happening, especially in Southeast Asia, our nearest neighbours, when it comes to the, the impact of COVID. Now, as someone who spent five years living in Southeast Asia and was a, a Southeast Asia correspondent, I find this really concerning. And I feel like there's been a slippage in the level of coverage that we're actually getting from Southeast Asia during COVID, but even prior to that. Do, do, you, do you think that there is, well, I, I think it's self-evident that there's inadequate coverage of Southeast Asia and perhaps Asia more broadly. But I'm just wondering then where Chinese Australians and where indeed Asian Australians get, are getting their coverage from? And is there a sense of dissatisfaction around not being represented within mainstream media coverage? Oh, absolutely. I think um, one of the issues we found with the survey with Chinese Australian last year was how the perception or the sentiment that Australian media reports China in a very negative way, um, and that and that was that was confirmed in um, our focus group findings as well. That a lot of the reporting about China, when it comes to China and Australia-China relations, it's always sort of the um, negative effects. Um, or the negative impacts and the portrayal of China as a as an, an in a negative light. And I think going back to your point about sort of the lack of coverage of Southeast Asia during the pandemic, um, as uh, as you know, you know, um, India, <clears throat> Indonesia have all suffered greatly during the pandemic, and the the amount of coverage that we see on Australian mainstream media is just not there. These are our nearest neighbours. And yet the coverage focuses on um, on the United States, UK and Europe. And I, I think that says something about, you know, Australia's relationship, the importance of Australia's relationship, or at least from a high politics level, what politicians and what the media uh, seeks to cover is that that type of relation, Australia-US, Australia-UK relationship. And we saw that with AUKUS last year, that there's a preference for in a way, for the Anglosphere. So where where then do Australian, Chinese Australians or Asian Australians get their, get their information in terms of media coverage? For the majority of Chinese Australians, they turn to WeChat, which is a Chinese app, which is available in Australia. And the information that they seek is not just news, but it's also a way to maintain contact with family and friends. And also it functions as sort of a facilitator for everyday living as well. So WeChat is one way in which Chinese Australians stay connected with family and friends, but also seek information about their local communities in which they live here in Australia. So I think that's where um, the good majority of Chinese Australians will seek information when they can't find it elsewhere. Yes, it, it seems quite short-sighted on the part of media organisations, given the substantial population of not only Chinese Australians, but Asian Australians who want to see coverage um, that links uh, our communities, if you like. But I, I wonder whether it's to do with having a more diverse uh, population of journalists, but also management in those media organisations who are sort of driving the direction of the, the coverage. Yeah, so um, it's really sort of heartening to see, um, you know, public broadcasters broadcasters like ABC and SBS in the last couple of years really turning their attention to um, the Chinese-speaking population here in Australia. They've really beefed up their coverage of news that matters to Chinese Australians and publishing those news articles and having news uh, in the Mandarin language. 
So I think um, in one way, public broadcasters have that obligation to serve the broader um, community, not just the English speaking community, but um, the culturally and linguistically diverse communities of Australia. So that's really, that's really excellent. And SBS is having, you know, uh, I, I think they have started um, daily broadcasts of in a Chinese language uh, news. So that's, that's really great. Um, but I think um, the diversity of journalists from different cultural backgrounds will really help shape the media landscape in Australia as well. So reporting issues that matter to these ethnically diverse communities. Mm. Now I want to get on to the sort of, if I could call it somewhat combative relationship between the Australian and Chinese governments currently. Firstly, um, what does that mean for Chinese Australians in terms of the way they're treated by non-Chinese Australians? Do, do Chinese Australians get blowback as a result of that geopolitical conversation? Yeah, so in the last few years, we've seen the debate becoming, uh, uh, the relationship becoming more tense there's greater friction between Australia and China, at least at the high political level between Canberra and Beijing. And um, with the onset of the pandemic, um, we've also seen sort of greater racism um, levelled at Chinese Australians, given sort of the origins of, of COVID-19. And so uh, you sort of that as well as sort of the debate about Australia-China relations shifting to a foreign interference debate has created a lot of uneasiness within Chinese Australian communities. So what we saw um, in um, a Senate hearing in 2020 was um, three Chinese Australians giving testimony, testimonies in front of the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations about um, Chinese Australians' communities and they were asked about, you know, declaring their allegiance to Australia and sort of uh, they were asked to declare their allegiance to Australia and to sort of denounce the Communist Party of China. So the, those kind of issues and those kind of events that arise in a political um, atmosphere really creates a, a, an environment which Chinese Australians feel uncomfortable being Chinese um, mm. because there's association that if you're Chinese, then maybe you're automatically a uh, communist party sympathiser, which is completely erroneous. Um, Chinese Australians come from many areas around the world, not just China, but um, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan. And, um, and for Chinese Australians to be publicly asked to denounce, you know, the CCP is just uh, completely ludicrous. So I would say, you know, that debate has really the foreign interference debate has really created um, a lot of uneasiness within Chinese Australian communities and hence a lot of us Chinese Australians are unwilling to be vocal in the public arena for the fear of being labelled as a CCP sympathiser or pro-CCP supporter. Mm. So, yeah, and then, then that goes to a challenge then in, in terms of diversifying representation doesn't it because a, a lot of people probably wouldn't step forward to represent because they're going to be under some suspicion so therefore they'll they'll hang, hang back uh, absolutely i think um in the focus groups we've conducted over the past 12 months um chinese australians have noted that they were very 
wary about putting their hands up in any sort of leadership positions. And, you know, in speaking to colleagues and academics around Australian universities, they have to declare their partnerships with any Chinese Chinese universities, Chinese organisations. So that really creates an air of suspicion around what they do, the things they research, whom they engage with. And I think that that just creates, for any individual, there's um, a sense of we're not being welcomed. Um, if we're having to always declare our loyalty or allegiance to um, Australia, uh, we're not being treated as the same as any other Australians. Mm. And and how do you think then Chinese Australians do? And we've talked about the fact that you know not everyone is the same. But I'm interested to know how you think people grapple with those dual loyalties i mean it's obviously very different systems of government very very different sort of approaches to governing so how do you how do you kind of juxtapose those things as a chinese australian when you 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 have loyalty to to both countries i i assume yeah so i think you know with anyone who is an immigrant will have a sense will have a sense of attachment to their homeland it doesn't matter whether it's china or whether it's the united states or france or wherever it might be you know identities are not fixed they are always fluid and to say that you know you can feel a sense of attachment to australia and china or australia and the united states is perfectly okay i mean as a immigrant to a new society you want to feel um you want to feel connected with the society that you've migrated to, but you also don't want to lose touch with your family and friends back at home. So it's really, um, and I think sociologists um, in, you know, a, a gazillions types of research done on immigrants in Australia, Canada and elsewhere all show that there's a sense of attachment to homeland. And that sense of attachment generally um, uh, decreases over time once you've established your identity, um, your, your work, your career, your family, your Australian identity, your, your sense of attachment to homeland decreases over time. Feeling sense of attachment to China and to Australia, they're not uh, they're they're not dichotomous. You can have w- one, you, or you could have both, or you could have none. Right. So identities and sense of belonging really um, fluctuates over time, depending on you know where you are as a person, as as an individual over your life course. Hmm. And, and when we talk about this foreign influence debate, how do you think the perception of China's influence differs? in the minds of Chinese Australians and other Australians? So I think on the whole, Chinese Australians are, um, do feel that, um, so in the questions that we've asked about, you know, is China seen as, a, as an economic partner or a security threat to Australia? The majority of Chinese Australians um, answer that, you know, China should be seen, is seen as an economic partner. So I see that as, you know, it's the having optimism in that Australia-China relations. Rather than labelling China as a security threat, the, on the whole, Chinese Australians would see the benefits of the partnership or, or of that relationship compared to the broader Australian population. So I think um, that is definitely a positive and uh, there is much weight placed on um, having good China-Australia relationships, especially... Um, 
in an era where sort of um, the economy or economic decline is as a major uh, issue for not just for Chinese Australians but also for the broader Australian population. You know, with the limits capped on um, international students coming into Australia, that place a that places great pressure on small and medium um, businesses in Australia, not just on universities, you know, mm. um, businesses that rely on, you know, the, the custom of uh, international students, not just international Chinese students. So, you know, I think on the whole, Chinese Australians want the relationship to improve so that their economic prospects, if, if it depends on Australian-China relations being good, um, would improve over time. Mm. So, you know, I understand it's a, a sort of sensitive subject, but are you able to put forward a view on how Australia should deal with China and in the context of this government has been quite combative with China, there's been sort of, I guess, some finger pointing at the opposition over the last week that it might go soft on China. In your mind, what's the most productive way to, for the two governments to interact? I am not at liberty to give advice to either governments <laughs> as to how to improve the relationship, but I speak on a personal capacity. And that really, um, for me, I think, uh, and having, you know, a lot of family and friends who are Chinese Australians, they see the benefit in um, people-to-people relationship. So really building up those community linkages between Chinese Australians and the broader Australian community. and. You know, I do believe in grassroots movement. So hopefully through community engagement, those positive sentiments will filter upwards. I think for a lot of Chinese Australians, um, not just people whom I'm connected with, but also through our focus groups, that they do believe in building those personal relationships as a way to, as a counter to what is happening between Beijing and Canberra. That uh, for many of us, we feel like we can't, change what is happening at the political level or at the, um, at the Beijing Canberra level, or we can make changes at the local level. So um, I, I know that that doesn't answer your question directly and doesn't provide sort of a foreign policy um, solution. But I think for the majority, Chinese Australians really do want to have good relationships, um, not just at the political level and the diplomatic level, but also what matters to them on a daily basis is their interactions with their neighbours, their interactions with their local communities. And if that community is more than just Chinese Australians, then we need to do something to improve um, that conversation around Chinese Australians, their contribution to, to community, to society, to the economy and their representation. Mm. And I think those sorts of relationships are helped by the kind of conversation you and I are having. So just finally, it's a federal election year, obviously, in Australia. It's also a National Congress in China. Does the intersection of those two things pose an opportunity, perhaps, in this relationship-building context? Yeah, I mean, one can be hopeful that... Uh, with the upcoming Australian federal elections, it might bring new policy thinking to the table or articulate new um, policy avenues to explore in the Australia-China space. I'm looking forward to what, you know, all political parties have to advance in their campaigns about foreign policy and Australia-China relations is one aspect of that. So we, we, I remain hopeful 
perhaps we broadly can remain hopeful of a, maybe not a reset per se, but at least um, new articulations of how that relationship can be restarted slowly but surely. Jennifer Shu is a research fellow in the Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at the Lowy Institute. Jennifer, thanks so much for such a generous conversation. Thank you, Zoe. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214, Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria. 